talk radio, music, and podcasts from the Korean Peninsula. KoreaFM.net. I'm Chance Dorland, and welcome to the Korea Blog Podcast, brought to you by KoreaFM.net, an online radio station featuring a 24-7 stream of independent musicians and original podcast content from the Korean Peninsula. This is one of Korea FM's new podcasts, and I'll be joined each episode by Colin Marshall, a Seoul-based essayist, broadcaster, and public speaker who writes each week on the literature, cinema, current events, and daily life here in South Korea for the Los Angeles Review of Books, Korea Blog. Colin, of course, great to be speaking with you again. Hello again. 안녕하세요, 여러분. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, um, it, it's funny that you start that way because um, we're talking about language, uh, not the Korean language, though, of course, that's going to come up. Um, but we're talking about your latest post on the LA Review of Books Korea blog, which has a great title. It's called Korea's English Fever or English Cancer. And uh, let's just start off by having you explain what you were trying to ask or what you're trying to provoke readers uh, with that title. It's very catchy. <laughs> it's it's I guess it has the potential to become a, a kind of a meme I suppose I I may have coined that myself but I'd be surprised if it never had crossed anybody else's mind because the phrase English fever is so well known here uh, this English phrase for something related to the English language it's uh, English fever is supposed to mean the Korean uh, craze in some sense for studying English for, I mean, to some extent learning English for uh, paying a lot of money for various English learning tools, lessons uh, of, of different levels of effectiveness. And, you know, fever in English, fever implies that it's, as I say, just kind of a craze or a phase or something that's hot right now. But, you know, English fever, as we know, it has been happening for quite a long time. And I think it's uh, if we're talking about it in, as a disease in the metaphor of a disease, I think it is something a bit more uh, invasive and dangerous and uh, wasting in society. The harmful effects, I mean, people people die from fevers these days, but not so much anymore. I think this is a, this is something, it's something worse than a fever. I'll put it that way. And so one of the ways that you kind of portrayed this uh, early on in your blog post, you gave this really interesting example, which I completely identified with not only living here in South Korea, but when I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Colombia, they kind of had similar um, commercials there for teaching Colombians English. And so... Um, you, you really hit on this fear that I think many Koreans have. It's a stereotype, but it, it's also very true where they're kind of cornered by Westerners in a situation where they ask them something in English and then the sweat rolls down and they don't have <laughs> either the tools to, to reply or maybe even they do, but there's just so much pressure and there's so much sweat that they're not able to. Can you talk about these commercials and why you chose them uh, as a way to highlight the the point you were making with this post? Yeah, you know, that. now that I think about it, those commercials really illustrate this not that translatable English term, uh, not 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 that translatable to English Korean term, tapada, like to feel like to feel that you're somehow blocked from being able to respond to something. I think these commercials for uh, for an app called Speaking Max, it's an English learning app. I'm not sure how it's supposed to assist you, but there have been these series of commercials featuring. Yeah, it's always a Korean who gets suddenly approached by a foreigner. Who launches into conversation in English and then they start sweating, they can't respond. But it just, it strikes me that 
You know, the first few times I saw them, it just seemed like a kind of funny trope. But then you think about the assumptions underlying a commercial like this. And it's like, you know, why, why, do, why do these Westerners think they can approach a Korean in Korea in a foreign language? And why do the Koreans feel obligated to respond? As soon as I started thinking about that, it's sort of all these grim implications kind of started springing up, you know, if you just dig a little bit under the surface, you realize uh, something, something may be going wrong here in, 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 the rela- in, in this society's relationship to a foreign language, to English specifically, like it, it, it seems just unhealthy. And you, you bring it up to people, Korean or foreign, and they, 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 they sort of get it. I mean, no one really thinks this country has a healthy relationship with English, right? The thing I really like about how you wrote this post was that, as you just mentioned, you're not entirely talking about the Korean side of things. You're talking about the fact that, you know, they don't know how to reply or maybe they're too shy. There's a lot of things going on, the sweat, you know, that that really comes across in your writing. But then the idea that these Westerners would expect to not only be able to approach someone speaking English, but then have them be able to reply back. I mean, there's really two sides of the coin here. There is. It's that was the part that bothered me the most was the Westerners just feeling like they could step up and start speaking full speed, full volume in English uh, and expect a response. But the commercials, these Speaking Max commercials do, they take some pains to set up the situation to make it look like these Koreans asked for it. Uh, Like, you know, she's holding books from her English hagwon that say, learn to speak English, so the guy naturally thought she could, or she's watching CNN on her... uh, on her laptop in the library, so naturally the guy thought she spoke English, or he was reading on the plane an English-language newspaper, so the lady next to him naturally thought he could understand whatever she said. But it's, I mean, it's really an assumption that goes much deeper than that on the part of Westerners here in Korea. I mean, I would say foreigners, but it's often more of a problem with Westerners, the sense that, well, it'll be fine, I can get by with English. They, you know, quote-unquote, People know English there. Uh, I'll just sort of skate by. Or even I was having a conversation with uh, a few other Westerners last night at dinner about this very thing. And they were sort of, I was insisting that you'll never learn if you if you operate according to that logic. That if a Korean has more English than you have Korean, you should speak English. Well, that, I mean, you shouldn't if you actually want to learn, but many Westerners have internalized that, and so have Koreans. So there's this whole sense of Koreans feeling as if they're obligated to learn and speak English, and then Westerners feeling like, oh, they, they must have all learned English well enough to accommodate me. So it's a pretty, if you step back and look at it, it's, a, it's an ugly situation. Something uh, that we just hit on that I want to focus on a little bit more was um, you talked about how, you know, maybe it's not completely um, out of the blue, the fact that these Westerners would start speaking English because someone's watching CNN or they have a, a language book or they're holding an English newspaper. And on those on that line of thinking, you asked a, a very important question. You asked, why does every South Korean student have to spend so much of their time studying, but not just a foreign language, specifically English? And why hasn't it had ostensibly the desired results that they were looking for? So a lot of people might have CNN on their computer at a, at a cafe, or a lot of people might have an English learning book with them. Why is that the case here? And why is it so much here in South Korea when in other Asian countries it's not? Yeah, it's a situation where it, it goes well beyond 
people having Koreans having a a deep and widespread interest in the English language. In fact, I don't know how much is driven by an interest. There's the situation where, uh, as I think we've talked a little bit about before, the uh, the Sunlung Shihom, their equivalent of the SAT, it has an English language section on it. And if you can't do well on that, I mean, this this English language section is, uh, it's often what separates the performers from the non-performers on the Sunlung. And if you can't do well in the English section, uh, you probably won't get into a good school. And that is perceived as the only gateway to a good life here in Korea. So to an extent, students perceive their entire future as hinging on their ability to pass an English test. And of course, this is not this is not a test where you sit down with a native English speaker and chat. It's not about communication. It's about filling in bubbles. It's all multiple choice. And uh, it's it's very much the, the, the classes people have, uh, the classes students have about English and the, the, um, the millions of uh, equivalent of U.S. dollars they spend um, on English language education in the private sector, it's, it seems to all be directed toward uh, performance on this multiple choice English test. So English gets taught as almost a series of rigid rules like a chemical formula. And as we know, as native English speakers, it's nothing like that. And to the great frustration of Koreans who feel as if they've invested, you know, a decade of education and who knows how much money into learning English and they're They've learned test English, which is not a language. It's nothing. They don't really have anything but maybe their ability to do well on this exam. And nothing is really guaranteed about their lives because they've done well on it. It just hasn't closed a door to them. And so as you mentioned, you know, we're native English speakers and we're living in a foreign country. So this is something that we understand and we can probably identify a little bit with what Koreans are going through learning another language. But you have actually kind of done both sides of the equation in this example. You studied Korean in Los Angeles before you decided to come here to Korea, and now you're studying Korean here in Seoul as well. And it's not a formula. It's something you have to jump into. And it's also something that you wrote English as a foreign language. You can't actually learn in a classroom. So could you talk about the differences that you've experienced studying Korean in an English-speaking country and now studying Korean in a country where, you know, most likely anywhere you go, that would be the language you'd be speaking. And that would be the language that you'd be hearing. I studied, I started studying Korean just right out of college. Uh, when I was living in Santa Barbara, I went to UC Santa Barbara. And they, I, I just started studying on my own because I was not in college anymore. And there weren't any sort of accessible Korean classes there. So just through what videos I could find, what podcasts I could find, those who just started coming out, what books I could find in the library. Uh, so I sort of began that way, then moved to Los Angeles. As you say, I lived there where there is a huge Korean population. It's, I think, the most Korean city outside Korea in terms of Koreans residing uh, there. And there's a Korean cultural center, which several cities have across the world, and they offer language classes, something called the um, King Sejong Institute, named after the uh, the, the man who commissioned uh, the, the Korean and written language, Hangul. But uh, yeah, I started taking it there. And my classmates, as I rose up the, the levels, there are something like nine levels you can take there. My classmates became more and more, you know, the K-pop fans drifted away or dropped out. And it became just um, the uh, the Kyopo, the, the, uh, or the second generation, the Korean Americans uh, who wanted to learn to communicate with their grandparents or even parents. You know, that's that's who it was. And then me, and then there was another white dude who had a Korean wife, and we became friends. But uh, it was really uh, a sense, the sense there was there were people, 
There were other people my classmates needed to communicate with, and they were trying to learn for that reason. The classes weren't quite rigorous enough. There were no tests and there was no homework, and you could just keep moving on up regardless of what you had or hadn't learned. So by the end, I took the advanced class many times over again when I just got as high as you could go. But the, 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 the variety of skill levels were so disparate, it was hard to really make any progress. So I supplemented that with a lot of different things, speaking partners, more books, more podcasts, more videos. But then moving here, yeah, you know, in Korea, I have yet to take a formal class. I might... Um, start something like that soon in the KIIP program. That's the Korea Integration and Immigration Program designed for people who are trying to integrate into Korean society. Um, but, you know, I meet with a Korean teacher every week and I meet, I meet Westerners who have lived here for a long, long time, you know, 15 plus years who still have to do that. Because as one said, uh, I interviewed a professor named uh, Brian Reynolds Myers down in Busan. He uh, is a North Korea analyst, but he's, he lectures all in Korean. He's been here for, uh, you know, that same span of time over 15 years. And uh, he says, you know, he still takes lessons every week and still he encounters some difficulty because his teacher just can't explain to him why certain things are wrong or right. It's, it's so often a question of feeling and the grammar can only take you so far in Korean, just as it can in English, which is why I say uh, you can't do it in a classroom. You can get a bit of a foundation, but the most of the most uh, most learning I do comes from making mistakes in conversational situations, which with great frequency I still do, and that's how I learn, and that's how the learning has always been effective. Bringing up the Sunung again, basically the Korean SAT, it's such a big deal here not only to get into the right college, you know, one of the Sky Universities, the top three, but also that day they like reroute air traffic so that the planes won't be making noises. Um, they yes. reroute actual traffic so that people can make sure they get to school on time if they're taking a taxi. I mean, I've even heard of like police giving rides to students to make sure they could get to school on time. And then you have students outside of the school shouting like, you know, very powerful slogans and like holding signs, you can do it, that type of thing. And so perhaps the idea that the English education is connected to this test is not surprising. But also, I want to ask you what you think about, even though if you might disagree that the English that they're teaching them should be for speaking English instead of, you know, preparing for this test, are they even getting their money's worth in what they're investing to prepare for the test? Because something that you mentioned in your article is that the age for starting English classes in Korea is going further down. So it used to be older and now it's even younger. So are they admitting that it's not working what they're doing? And is this maybe what you think is a, a way they've come up with trying to fix that? So if they're going to force people to learn all this English language, let's do it at a younger age. And then maybe we'll be getting our money's worth. There's a very fascinating documentary I would recommend to anybody who's interested in these things. Uh, it's called Reach for the Sky. I wrote about it in uh, on the Korea blog a few months ago. The filmmakers are actually Belgian, but they came here to shoot the documentary about this Sunung Shihom culture, and especially uh, the English uh, the English studying around it. I believe the Korean title of the film is Gongbo uh, Nara, so the country of studying, essentially. But they get an interview with someone who actually seemed like quite a get. Yeah, I think his name is uh, Kim Gi-hoon. He's the star teacher of this uh, this company, Mega Study, which we all will have seen. If, if you live in Korea, you've heard of Mega Study. It's this empire of essentially Sunung preparation uh, classes and uh, video lectures. That's what this guy, Kim, Kim Gi-hoon, is known for, his video lectures. He's known as this master English teacher who will, if you give enough money to Mega Study, he will give you the secrets for pass passing the English exam. But... 
uh, he has been interviewed in English, and his English is not what you would expect of somebody making the equivalent of $4 million a year teaching English. Uh, you know, he'll, he makes the standard mistakes anybody would make if they were just an intermediate student of English. I'm not saying, I mean, he's, he's fine at English, but he, he's, you know, he clearly sounds like somebody who, um, who, for whom it's not a native language and who hasn't really intensively practiced in a conversational setting. And yeah, as I say, $4 million a year income he's getting teaching English. So that tells you he's teaching something other than English as we know it. Something English, not as a communication tool, but as a, uh, as a sort of, uh, as, a, as the only subject matter that on the Sunung can produce enough standard deviation to separate students into the various, you know, the college is on the various points of the hierarchy. So there's, a, in a sense, you, you can say there's an admission that these services haven't worked, but the purpose has almost explicitly been about uh, success on an English test. Now, with these sort of, with with the age ever falling that English starts, I mean, I do meet, uh, I meet parents here in Korea whose kids are quite young, uh, you know, kindergarten age, who who've already started English classes, sometimes even before that. and uh, Or not even just English classes, but like complete, we're teaching them math in English, we're teaching them science in English. I mean, basically right. complete schooling in a foreign language different than, you know, what they're speaking at home. Yeah, it's it's like English immersion, and this it hits on the other series of commercials I've written about in this blog post, uh, which they're they're for a, a company called English Egg, which makes early childhood English learning materials, and yeah, it stars this little Korean girl who is you know uh, singing about how she painted a tree and how she loves bread and milk, you know these very Western foods, and just kind of putting on the manner of a, of a fake Westerner, which is I mean there's something. There's something creepy about this, right? I'm not the only one who finds this a bit chilling. I mean, have you seen these commercials? Yeah, I actually try to avoid Korean television like the plague. Um, I, I love <laughs> Korea. And, you know, as you and I have, have spoken, um, I, I love Korea. Um, I love um, lots of things about Korea. Television is not one of them. I, I am really just creeped out by uh, Korean television in general, like the the dramas and the reality television shows. Um, I've actually done a little bit of Korean TV and all the stuff you see on reality shows. And, and in all fairness, probably in the West, there it's a little fake as well. But like, you just get coached by the producer. They tell you exactly what you need to do. They tell you, oh, you just ate food, but now do it again with more excitement. Um, and so I just try to avoid it. But I have seen enough to know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, well, this was a commercial airing on EBS, the educational station, which is the main one I watch. It's kind of a cut above content-wise, but still the commercials tell you a lot about the uh, society and what's going on in it. I mean, that's where I saw the Speaking Max commercials as well. So it's the educational channel in a way that their commercials really reveal this attitude toward English and uh, what's what's the, what they're trying to achieve in any case. I want to wrap up discussion on the Sunung and move on to a couple different things, but you kind of um, write something that's like, you know, if I was king for the day, this is what I would do to change uh, Korea's college scholastic ability test. What would you do? Right. This is a subject that comes up in conversation with Korean friends and non-Korean friends alike. You know, if you could change one thing here, what would it be? Because often people... Even people who really like Korea have just one major complaint they think would fix everything if it was if it was addressed. And uh, often it's about language. Uh, my my response to it is I would take English off the sunung, and you know you could replace it with something else that wasn't 
that didn't make people feel ashamed that they hadn't learned an actual, that they hadn't gained an actual command of English. Because, you know, the amount of negative emotions that brings into a society already in many ways saturated with negative emotions uh, that it just it doesn't seem very productive to me you know you could replace it with memorizing the digits of pi for the same effect and you also talk about it kind of like leaving foreign languages to the people who actually either want to learn them or should be learning them right yeah i think why not it's the same as any subject if you don't have if you don't have an interest in something, you're not going to have an aptitude for it. You're not going to excel in it. And that is, that's, a, that's a line of thinking that hasn't really figured into the common perception here, the sense that if you don't have an interest in a subject, uh, you're going to be up against people who do. And you're not going to make it if, you, if, you don't, if you're not actually into it. Uh, if you're not into English in and of itself, you're going to have a hard time excelling. If you're not into engineering, you're going to have a hard time. If you're not into whatever it is you're trying to compete in, uh, some people, a lot of, not just some, a lot of students here will have an interest and you can't compete with that if you're just trying to elbow grease it. There's no substitute for having a real genuine engagement driven by an interest, whether that's for languages or something else. Yeah. It kind of reminds me, um, it, it's not the best example, but when I was a kid, I liked playing basketball and I could be like a really good like horse player um you know mm -hmm. pig you know where you shoot from the court and you have a spot and if you make it someone else has to make it and if they miss they get a letter i was actually pretty good at that but i was a really heavy kid and i wasn't mm -hmm. tall and it was like unless i was going to address the fact that i wasn't tall which you know probably i couldn't have or if unless i was going to lose <laughs> weight i wasn't going to be that good at actually playing basketball Right. No matter how much I tried to, to be a very good shooter. You know, I remember watching like the Guinness World Records television show that was on when I was in, like, <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, that was on when I was in like middle school. And it would be like, oh, some guy can spin eight basketballs um, on his body with like this plastic device. And they had this really old guy that looked kind of like Bernie Sanders. And <laughs> he had like the free throw record in the entire world. They could put like a big cardboard box in front of him so he couldn't even see the hoop and he would just chuck the ball up into the air and it would always go in no bounce complete net shot right but this guy could mm. never play in any type of basketball game because he just doesn't yes. have what you need this reminds me of what you just talked about with english in korea even a very intelligent hardworking student if they don't feel motivated if they don't see a particularly good reason in their own mind to learn this. I mean, I took three years of Spanish in high school in my rural Iowa town, and I had literally no Spanish skill when I got to Columbia um, as like a 24-year-old to be in the Peace Corps, despite the fact that I had taken a class for three years of my life because I didn't care when I was in high yes, school. Yes, exactly. You had no interest in it, so you, you, weren't, you weren't pursuing anything. You weren't chasing any objective. I mean, I meet plenty of you know, Korean translators of English who really do have a love of the English language and a fascination with it and a desire to deepen their interest in it. And they do very well. But it's such a specialized subject. It's a there's almost I, Korea almost turns a blind eye to the fact that it's a foreign language. And there's only going to be so many people who will have the desire to gain even competence in it, let alone uh, let alone a high level of mastery. Yeah, it's like the judging your basket. It's like, yeah, the free throw skills, uh, taking those and calling those basketball skills. It's not really basketball skills. And then I keep bringing this up because you and I, we love Korea. We could talk about it sure. for, forever. We love South Korea. But you specifically, you enjoy going to Japan. 
I do. Uh, you've been there quite a few times. Um, there, maybe not quite a few. You've been there a couple different times since you got here to South Korea, and I'm sure you'll go there again in the future. Um, not a shock. Many people often compare South Korea and Japan, talking about food, you know, aspects of life, culture. Um, we have chosen South Korea over Japan, but you talk about how you kind of have a sigh of relief when you leave the ROK and make a quick trip over um, not the Sea of Japan, but the East Sea, as we've learned here in South Korea. <laughs> yes, of course. Why do you have that kind of sigh of relief or why is it maybe a little nice to get over to Japan, specifically talking about English? Yes, I am going again, in fact, to Osaka in, in June, I think, but and I'm looking forward to it. But of course, I do, I do prefer South Korea as a place to live. But Japan, the main, the main hit of relief you get, at least that I get when I land there, is that, you know, when you talk to somebody, you're going to have to use some Japanese and they're going to speak Japanese back to you. And they don't expect perfection. They do expect you to try. They don't think you're going to be good at Japanese, but they will engage you in Japanese, uh, no matter who you're talking to. And, you know, that you can rest assured the language of Japan is Japanese, whereas in Korea, even even people, I mean, I have a friend, an American friend here who speaks Korean fluently, very, very fluently. And he is, he just has this condition, almost like anxiety about, still to this day, he's lived here over 10 years, going, even going to a coffee shop and speaking in Korean to the barista and them speaking English back, no matter how well you speak Korean, you could always get English back. Uh, you could get this sort of mixture of English and Korean, and you can't recognize the English words because they've been changed beyond recognition. Uh, it's sort of a Konglish thing, but sometimes just random English words. Uh, you know, often it's Korean. In my experience, if you speak Korean, you're going to hear Korean back most of the time. But there is that insecurity that, you know, you're in Korea, yet you can't feel secure that you're going to be engaged with in the language of the country that this is, which is not, it's not horrible. You can deal with it, but it's, it doesn't need to be that way, does it? Yeah, it's funny to once again bring up my, my Peace Corps um, experience. When I was in Colombia, I, you know, I, I learned decent enough Spanish so I could talk with my family and, and communicate with uh, the English teachers that were in my department at, at my uh, colegio, you know, the school I worked at in um, the area of Barranquilla on the coast where I lived. But when I would meet new people, we had lots of trainings at like hotels or conference places um, with different Colombian um, professors or, you know, experts on, on this topic or the other. And when I would talk to them, we always would speak in Spanish. And then later on, when we were having like some team building exercise or maybe if we we're eating a meal, they would say something in English and they would have a rather good English accent to the point that you think they've either studied for a long time or maybe they've lived in an English speaking country. And I was always like, why, why didn't you tell me you spoke English like two <laughs> days ago? We could have just been like chatting in between uh, classes and like, you know, we could have just been like having a good old time. I had no idea. And I felt like they were holding back. That never right. happens in South Korea. Um, my Korean is not that great. In fact, your Korean is far surpassed mine at this point, despite the fact that I studied six months at a university and stuff, because you're more into it than I am. But here in South Korea, the people that I know, if they have good English skills, it comes out pretty quickly, even if I try to speak with them in Korean. Yeah, and that's an obstacle for a lot of people here, for a lot of Westerners here, especially. Um, where they, they have this sense that they, that they don't need to try to speak Korean if, if the 
if the Korean people they're talking to know any English at all. Uh, and of course, a lot of Koreans will, you know, it's, it's like the old joke about uh, how do you know if somebody is vegan? Well, they'll let you know. Uh, you'll know a Korean speaks, you'll know what amount of English a Korean speaks because they'll bring it out oftentimes. Uh, so that discourages foreigners because the, like the whole thing I say, you never know when you're going to get responded to in English. And it's something that a lot of a lot of foreigners here are not willing to do. But I do advise to uh, not not engage back with an own with an unknown Korean who's who's approaching you in English with no reason to believe you speak it. Uh, if if you make a habit of that, of flipping to English whenever anybody tries to get you to do that, even if it's a stranger, you're always going to, and it's going to be very hard to learn. Uh, if you do just operate on your own assumption that you're in Korea in public with somebody you don't know, uh, you're going to start off in Korean. And I, I do this even with non-Koreans oftentimes. Uh, it's, it helps to get some traction or, or else you get in the psychological habit of just defaulting to English whenever the least resistance presents itself. Yeah, don't be an enabler, everybody. I'm, <laughs> yes, I'm guilty exactly. of this as well, but you're absolutely right. If um, Even with what I often feel is very limited, even though I, I'm light years ahead of, you know, most of my friends because they don't even make the little bit of effort that I have. Although, truthfully, I guess six months at university is a good amount of effort. Um, yes, right. I need to do this more. Absolutely right, Colin. Um, finally, good discussion. Let's wrap it up here, though. But you, you finished by writing that, quote, still Korean English education as we know it has chugged along despite discomforting side effects. So why do you think that's the case then? Why, why has everything that we've already talked about, all the negative sides of this, why has this not kind of stopped the train from chugging along? And then which direction do you think the tracks are going to go in the future? Do you think it might slowly start to fade away as we've seen English education in Japan go down? Um, although obviously two somewhat different situations. Um, or do you think maybe it'll just continue on in a different flavor? It'll just kind of change, reinvent itself, but still so much pressure, so much money going into it. Right, I do wonder about it. In fact, just recently in Ten Magazine, there was an article by the historian Robert Neff about the history of English education in Korea. It only goes back to the 1880s. So it's it's not a new phenomenon by any means, but it's not like it's it stretches back the entire history of uh, the existence of the English language. Now, the the size of the industry, the size of the English education industry and how much money goes into it, uh, is it's something that any foreigner who came here as a teacher will know. The temptation always exists to sort of dip your hand into that well because there's so much money going through the system of English education. And really, they'll hire anyone who's a native English speaker uh, to partake in this system. So there are a lot of incentives to keep it going. I mean, there's, there's of course, the teachers who benefit from it. There's the advantage a student can get as far as uh, college admissions from the whole teaching to the test system. Not to mention, I mean, I, I, we said a little while ago, we talked about Kim Gi-hoon who's himself pulling down $4 million a, a year as the mega study superstar teacher. He's not the only beneficiary uh, of, of the industry. So the real, the real question is, I guess it, it comes down to, as we talked about, what's going to happen to the sunung? Because if anything changes on the sunung, there's huge reverberations through the education industry here and indeed through the culture. So if really English were to be de-emphasized for any reason, uh, that would have 
that would have a pretty strong effect. Now that's one, that's an argument for why it, why nothing might change is because you have this sort of too big to fail situation, but it, it's a, a friend I was, who I was talking with, uh, with about all this was saying, you know, he saw a couple different ways forward for South Korea, learn more English or have more babies and they're not having more babies. So it's left them only the option of further globalizing. Uh, now, whether that can be successfully done, or to what extent that can be successfully done with more English, I'm not, I'm not sure about. Uh, it, it's really hard to say from what we've seen so far. But uh, the other big question that comes to mind is uh, is reunification. You know, if that happens, the linguistic landscape might change quite a lot because they don't even use. English loanwords in the North, they actively don't use them. You know, I, I can't say very many positive things about North Korea, but at least they don't use uh, an English word when they have a perfectly good Korean word already. Um, but if that, the linguistic influence of reunification would be the most interesting thing for me to watch. I mean, that might be, you know, when you, when you have over 70 million people in Korea rather than a South Korea with 50 million and a North with 20 million, and you have a language much less influenced, a Korean language much less influenced by foreign languages, especially not English, that then disseminates uh, into the South, that's, it's not, it's not a situation where English is going to be the focus necessarily. But, you know, when you bring up reunification, we're all wondering what's going to happen. It's not just linguistic. Yeah, that's the um, it's 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 so great to be able to talk about this topic with you, even though we're not actively involved in the English language uh, industry as English native English speaking foreigners. We kind of are living here in South Korea. And then the other big, you know, elephant in the room would be North Korea. I mean, those are these are the yes. things that are constantly in the news. And obviously there's other topics as well. Um, Japan being one of them. Uh, but, you know, maybe the top three right there. Um, yes. So it's, it's really interesting. It's kind of funny. I'm, I guess I'm a little bit of a nerd. I'll, I'll admit it here when it comes to radio, but I was thinking of a perfect way to end this. And I just want to say, you know, Colin, if you have an unfortunate accident in the next week or two, I guess we're going to know why, because we've just said some not so great things <laughs> about the English industry here in South Korea. But as you mentioned, so many beneficiaries, not only, you know, could you get like tackled by a group of Western English teachers, but you could get, you know, someone could try to take you out on the Korean side of things because they're all these hog ones for the most part are run by Koreans. It's all, you know, big companies like Samsung. Um, specifically, I, I have a friend or two that work for Samsung, like corporate English teaching. So they bring them in to work with the higher execs um, who are much older and maybe don't have English experience, but they have to kind of bring them up because they're traveling around the world. So, yeah, you're, right. I, I, I don't want to make too much of this, but you're kind of like that lone like reporter working for um, the L.A. Times who's like trying to bring down the drug smugglers like in the community. Like, watch your back, Colin. Yeah, there, there's that. I mean, I, I don't worry too much about being tackled by foreign English teachers because they're pretty scrawny. I think we all know <laughs> that they're, they're not they're not a robust lot oftentimes. So any attack from them, I can survive the teachers themselves. But yeah, I have been I've already become known among my friends here as uh, as sort of. Not not necessarily a pain in the ass, but I, I have been become somewhat known for my uh, advocacy of uh, foreigners of, of the, of my advocacy of foreigner Korean language acquisition, and uh, maybe my 
championing of the de-emphasizing of English uh, somewhat among Koreans. So I'll watch my back, but you cannot run Samsung, you know, for too long. Yeah, and then, you know, if you're like a big public square, big public space, why don't you stand, you know, a couple steps to the left or a couple steps to the right of college? <laughs> Just don't stand next to them, you know, in the sniper in a building, something like that. Yes, yes, bear this in mind. <laughs> bear this in mind if you encounter me. All right, well, we'll kill the joke there. I've been speaking with Colin Marshall, soul-based SAS broadcaster, public speaker, writes each week on the literature, cinema, current events, and daily life here in South Korea for the Los Angeles Review of Books Korea blog. Colin, really enjoyed speaking with you on this topic, and I look forward to speaking with you for the next podcast episode as well. I'm looking forward to it. Down my boy.